Hi friends, welcome back. My guest today is Alex O'Connor, otherwise known as Cosmic Skeptic, and today we are posing some of the most difficult and famous questions in ethics. Some of my favourite episodes that we do on Modern Wisdom are ones that pose questions that force you to actively participate in the discussion. I really enjoy bringing you along for the ride and making sure that you're engaged in what is being said. So today Alex gives us some mind-bending questions that force us to question our intuitions around what is good and what is bad. So today, expect to learn what does it mean to say that a thing is good? Why should you do one thing instead of another? Why should we care about well-being? What is the definition of suffering? And on whose authority is anything good or bad? Really, sort of, uh, it's it's a episode that you should be focused on while you're listening to it. Let's put it that way. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But for now it's time for a mental workout with the wise and wonderful Alex O'Connor. Alex Bloody O'Connor, how are you? Chris, I am I'm well. All the better for seeing you, as as they say. Uh it's been it's been too it's been too long. I haven't seen you in person since we went to that event in London. And I can't think how long ago that was now where you made me do February. the yoga that you seem to be telling everyone and their dog about. And uh, <laughs> that photo of me, that photo of me that you keep posting is like, you know the one of Beyonce that she wanted to disappear from the internet. It, that's my version of that. It's me trying to work out how to put my leg under the thing. Yeah, it, it, it was a nightmare. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a shame. It's good to be speaking to you again, even if it's a, a public conversation. Yeah, I know, man. It is. Uh, that was one hell of a weekend. Mm. One, one, one hell of a weekend. I've got, I've got the full length, one hour yoga form recording both of us doing it side by side and i'm considering offering it out to the highest bidder i'm pretty certain there's some people on the internet some fairly sort of prominent uh, debaters of yours that would pay good money for that kind of ammunition yeah uh, yeah I, I i i do worry about some of the ammunition that my friends have on me and the people they could sell it to I, I think maybe i could release it as a patreon exclusive or something that might be a good or you could release it as a patreon exclusive that that's and then an steal all your patrons there you go yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll jump over to you there. Yeah, I don't know. Um, we'll see. But you know, I haven't even seen that video, so God knows I'll what see. other weird shapes I try to morph my body into. Hey, it was graceful. It was. It was your first time. You know, no one's good at the first time. No one's. Good. <laughs> no, no one's good no, at the first no one, time. Yeah, no one's good at the first time, as they say. Um, 
Mm. But no, yeah, that was well, that was February, man. That was a while ago. Was that February? Yeah. Man, it's crazy. It's a crazy world out there. Um, it, I, I've been getting a bit of flack for it actually, because you know, um, speaking, because I, I, I'm, we're going to be talking about ethics today. Um, because uh, I, I, when you reached out to me, and I, I, I was on your podcast before, and we talked about veganism, which was the first time we properly spoke, and that was ages ago now. Um, but of course, talking about veganism requires ethics more broadly as a, as an underlying. But hopefully, I can sway you in an ethical direction that that puts you off the idea of sharing those videos of me online but we'll see where it goes <laughs> yeah okay i see how you're circling this background now i'm a bad friend if that video ever surfaces <laughs> anywhere um so okay ethics morality where do we start yeah well look i mean it's it's a complicated business right um uh, ethics generally speaking people people have broad intuitions that certain things are right or wrong and uh, it, it's clear that some of these things seem to vary um across cultures across upbringings um but generally speaking everybody seems to have some kind of intuition that there is such thing as right or wrong when you when you break down ethics there are there are a number of layers in which you can look at it so one of the most important distinctions is between what might be called practical ethics and what might be called meta ethics um the simplest way to to define these two is to say that uh, practical ethics is answers the question of what is good, whereas meta-ethics answers the question of what good is, right? So if you're talking about practical ethics, this is generally what people think of when they think of ethics, right? Like, uh, is abortion moral? Is euthanasia uh, permissible? Um, these kinds of questions, questions of veganism, that kind of stuff, social justice, any of that. Um, but underlying that, we need to have some understanding of the meaning of the words we're using. I mean, what does it actually mean to say something is good? What does it mean to say that you ought to do something? Like, what are the definitions of these terms? And this is what you'd call meta-ethics. And this is the more difficult part, in my view. Um, and it's the part that, like, kind of there, there seems to be the, the most kind of irresolvable uh, disagreements. Because if you just have a different intuition about what, what good is, um, then you're kind of talking past each other. Whereas if you can at least agree that, say, you think that uh, good is good consists in what maximizes well-being for conscious creatures, then when you have an argument about veganism, it becomes uh, essentially an objective discussion because you can just objectively point to what affects well-being in, in, in various ways. But if you disagree about what it actually means, um, then you run into problems, right? The thing is, like, nobody nobody seems to agree on this, right? This isn't like a scientific endeavor where you, you conduct a bunch of experiments and you do peer review and then you just figure out what the answer is. It's like we're asking the same questions that Aristotle and Plato were asking, you know, like not much has actually changed. Uh, and a lot of the time, it, it's useful to read those classics because a lot of people end up reinventing the wheel and doing it badly because they're kind of thinking about ethics and they have this bright idea and they think this is amazing. Um, but it turns out, you know, a hundred other people have done it before them, but it's so buried in the literature that they don't know it exists. So it's really worth kind of familiarizing yourself with some of the, at least the basic kind of uh, conceptions of ethics across the board before you can jump into talking about practical ethics. Um, but I, I don't know, like... The, the the kind of most uh, interesting distinction that people tend to start with is what ethics is kind of what ethics is kind of driving at, right? I mean, so for instance, if I asked you what you think it means to say something is good, what what does that? I mean, what do you according to your intuition, what do you think that really means? Leaving the situation with more well-being or less suffering than when you found it. Sure. So the question trivially just becomes, why should you care about well-being? 
Why, why does that matter? Why shouldn't we try to maximize suffering? There is a preference in one way, and that tends towards something which is not painful. Okay, but what if someone comes along and says, look, I, I prefer other people to suffer. I don't want myself to suffer, but I think, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a sadist and I really enjoy other people's suffering. So I think the best thing to do is to cause as much suffering to them as possible whilst minimizing my own suffering. Presuming that we're all sovereign wills, mm. the preference of one shouldn't influence the preference of another. Right. So now the question becomes why, right? Because you can say something like, look, generally there's a preference towards this thing or the other, but just because the majority of people prefer something, that doesn't mean it's necessarily the right thing to do. Okay. And the first question that this highlights is objectivity in ethics. Right? One of the most important distinctions to make is between a, a conception of objective ethics and a conception of subjective ethics. To say that something is objectively right or objectively moral, to say that objective ethics exists, is to say that ethical propositions are true regardless of what people think about them. Right? It, it doesn't matter what your opinion is, in other words, because you say something like, well, it, it could be to, to do with like a preference for well-being, but if everybody on planet Earth decided that you know, the Holocaust was the right thing to do, Right. Let's say the Holocaust wiped out all of its opposition and Germany win the war and everybody or at least the majority on planet Earth are convinced that that was a good thing to do. Most people want to say that that doesn't matter. It was still bad. It was still wrong, even it's, if everybody doesn't agree with that. Right? It's something universal that sits outside of what an individual's sense of is. Right. Um, now, of course, that leads us to the intuition that morality does have at least some objectivity. Right. That there, there are, that you can say that an ethical proposition is actually true or false right and and it doesn't matter what you think about it the problem then becomes grounding it right like on whose authority is it good or bad now traditionally this is where religion would step up to the mark and still tries to today and in fact a popular argument for the existence of god is the moral argument and the moral argument is really simple and it says if uh if god does not exist objective morality does not exist objective morality does exist therefore god exists right the idea being that if there is such thing as objective morality, it needs to be grounded in something. And it can only really be grounded in some kind of authority, right? It can't be grounded in some kind of uh, preference of a human being or some kind of naturalistic feature. It has to have some kind of authority behind it. And that can only really come from uh, a kind of supernatural authority that supersedes everybody else, right? And so it's basically saying that because objective morality exists, God must exist. Right? And there are multiple ways to respond to this. The first is to try to ground objective morality in something else. But the second thing you can do before we get too far ahead of ourselves is to just say that morality actually isn't objective, right? You could say that morality is subjective. That is, it does, it, it is dependent on what the person feels. Um, now, of course, the biggest problem with this is that you, you run into the kind of situations where somebody might say, well, in my subjective opinion, the Holocaust was a good thing. Um, therefore, it was the right thing to do, right? And, and this doesn't sit right with us. But there are kind of different levels that subjectivity can work, right? So let me give you one example um, of the, the utilitarian case. Um, utilitarianism is broadly an objective uh, ethical theory, but, but I'll, I'll give you a kind of form of it that could demonstrate how the objective and the subjective can, can come together. So I might say something like, uh, I subjectively value my well-being, and so do you. You, you subjectively value your well-being, and everybody subjectively values their well-being. Now, it, it, it's trivially true that you you have to value your own pleasure. You have to think it's a good thing, right? Some people take pleasure in things that other people find painful, but 
that would not that would just be a wrong definition of pain for them because for them that would be a pleasurable experience or at least it would lead to a pleasurable experience now i can say something like look the the preference for pleasure is subjective right it, it's it's just it's just due to 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 your uh to your preference right but there are objective things we can know about how to maximize it so if i was a utilitarian who thought that the the basic justification for having pleasure and well-being and suffering as the the basis on which we ground ethics i could say that that's subjective but i could then be objectivist in in my ways of kind of analyzing situations and seeing what would actually maximize pleasure right so it can get a bit complicated right and and it's like <laughs> this this isn't even kind of this this isn't even the, the the beginning um but like one of the best ways oftentimes to explore different ethical theories and one of the ways in which people like to write about it in in uh, in the academy is essentially to rely on intuition right because you come up with some kind of ethical theory and you need to you need a way to test it so you have your ethical theory and then you run it against some kind of counterexample and you say well this ethical theory leads us to this conclusion which seems so absurd that we have to reject the ethical theory and this is a lot of the time how ethics is done right in order to show why someone's ethical theory is wrong you show what it leads to and show that it's that it's an absurdity or an immorality or something that's so obviously bad that we have to throw out the uh, the, the the theory this is known as a reductio ad absurdum um and that's the best way to explore ethics but like jumping into the question of ethics it's like it depends on what you want to do it depends on if you want to know what good is it depends on if you want to sort of work out famous moral dilemmas it depends on if you if you're just trying to look at a specific um moral issue and trying to kind of break it down like it depends what you want to do right like in a, in a conversation like this there are so many avenues you can go down i understand is it possible to have a conversation about practical ethics with the conversation about metaethics still being poorly defined it seems a little bit like playing football, but some people think you're allowed to handle the ball and other people think you can only kick it. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly the problem. If you don't have the same metaphorical theory, it's like you could be playing chess with someone who's using the rules of rugby and it's just it's not going to work. right? <laughs> okay, yeah. But generally speaking, people do have certain base level intuitions that are roughly the same. Right. And you can talk about practical ethics without breaking it into metaethics. And I think it's more interesting to do so um, because metaethics can get it can get complicated and tricky and, and you have to define the difference between doing and allowing and you have to it, it gets it gets complicated right? i imagine it gets quite semantic as well that you just a, a lot of the time it's what does this word mean and then you get into yeah. sort of senses of etymology and, and sort of bizarre um it's just linguistic territory this i think is one of the big challenges we have with communication sort of generally at the moment in the media that no one's actually defining what words mean we, words yeah. can mean multiple things. There's a term called semantic overload, which I learned from mm -hmm. ben, ben Shapiro, and that is what's being used an awful lot at the moment, semantic overload. Yeah. Uh, so I imagine when you're having a very complex discussion, really trying to get into the weeds with something and work out the nuance of practical ethics, and then someone comes in and goes, well, I know that you said that you kicked the ball, but is it really a ball? And why is it called yeah. ball? And you're like, oh, fucking hell, mate, come on. Exactly right. Kind of ruins this, the game. This is... This is what you run into, especially if you talk to someone who's got an interest in philosophy or ethics. If you, if you talk to them on a practical level and you say, well, look, I think that, uh, you know, the, uh, the mass confinement and torture of animals is, is immoral for the purpose of, you know, a, a, a fancy steak. Right. And someone turns around. If you talk to the average person, they'll talk around. They'll turn around and say, but what if they're treated this way? What if they're treated that way? They bring up practical concerns. But an ethicist might say, well, wh why? Like, why should I care about animal suffering? What, what does that matter? And I could say, well, care about animal suffering for the same reason you care about human suffering. And they say, 
well, why should I care about human suffering? Yeah. And, and the question can go on and on and on and on and on. And you never kind of come to a to a useful stopping point unless you can agree on something. Um, but you can talk about practical ethics without breaking it down to meta ethics if you do have certain uh, if you do have certain level agreements. So if I agree that we shouldn't cause harm to human beings unnecessarily, and so do you, then I can make an argument from consistency. I can say that, well, I think you're holding an inconsistent set of beliefs if you're OK with harming a human being. Oh, you're okay, OK with harming a non-human animal, but you're not okay with harming a human being. It's like, what are your reasons for one and the other? And I could show that maybe there's an inconsistency there, right? But like, you could be consistently wrong, right? Like I, I could, we, we could make our ethical, practical ethical case completely consistent. I could say that, well, in order to be uh, against animal exploitation, you also have to be, I don't know, you, you have to be pro-life in this instance and that instance. And for some strange reason, you also have to hold this other belief and this other belief and this other belief. And, and you can kind of convince someone of all of those things. But like, they could just be they could just have a consistent worldview that's that's wrong at its basis right so it depends what you're trying to do if you're trying to convince someone of a moral cause then it's better to talk on the practical level and try to point out inconsistencies but if you're trying to get to the question of what is actually good uh then you're better off talking a bit about meta ethics and one of the most important questions is what is the focus of ethics does does the focus of ethics uh or, or sh let's say does ethics should ethics focus on, say, the consequence of an action? Should it focus on the action itself? Should it focus on the agent performing the action? Right. These three are, are broadly three ways in which people distinguish ethics. So if we consider a statement like murder is wrong, some people might analyze that to mean that murder is wrong because the consequences that it leads to, that is, you know, someone dying, people suffering, people mourning, are bad, right? And so generally speaking, in order to determine whether something's right or wrong, we look at the consequences of the action. Seems somewhat intuitive, but some people like to instead say that the focus of ethics should be, and this is consequentialism, sometimes called teleology from the Greek word telos for end or purpose. Um, some people prefer to look at the agent. They prefer to say that don't, the reason you shouldn't murder is because the virtuous person wouldn't murder. Right. Like murder is not a virtuous thing to do. Aristotle's ethics was a, a virtue ethics theory. And it was kind of like the right thing to do is what the virtuous person would do, in other words. So it's, it's not so much about the action or its consequences. It's about it's, a, it's about the person committing the action. Right. Um, some people prefer to just look at the, the action itself, not the consequence, but the action itself. They say murder is wrong in and of itself, regardless of the consequences, regardless of who's performing it. Um, and this generally comes from this. This is a kind of typical view of religious people a lot of the time with divine command theory who think that ethics is just what's commanded by God. So if God says don't murder, then don't murder. That, that's that's kind of it. Full stop. Doesn't matter what the consequences are. It's just wrong in and of itself. And all of these things have kind of weight to them. And the reason why why people like kind of flip back and forth in them when they're studying them is because each of them seem to have kind of difficult ethical territory. Like if you, I think most people are at the beginning tend to be more uh, attracted to consequentialist ethics. Um, and that's because I think that generally speaking, our society is, 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 is a bit more based on consequentialist ethics than anything else. Like in, in, in the modern era, that seems to be the kind of the implicit way that people do ethics. But there are some really kind of uh, difficult problems with that. So for instance, let me take your, uh, let me take your proposition that kind of the right thing to do is what maximizes well-being right so this would be a consequentialist view and essentially a utilitarian one um utilitarianism being the idea that we should maximize utility 
and utilitarians identify utility, uh, utility with pleasure. So essentially, the, the, the best thing to do is to maximize pleasure or minimize suffering. Now, there are, there are various problems with this, but let me give you one example. Uh, this comes from a guy called Roger Crisp, who's a kind of leading John Stuart Mill um, scholar. And every undergraduate at Oxford has to read his commentary on, on uh, utilitarianism. And he gives this example of the rash doctor, right? So let me ask you a question here. A doctor has a patient uh, and, and they've got two potential medicines that they can give to the patient. Okay, like option A and option B. Uh, option A has, uh, option A, if successful, will restore the patient to 100% health, but it's got a 99% chance of failure and only a 1% chance of working. The 99% chance is that they'll die, right? So 99% chance that this is just going to kill the patient. Only 1% chance is going to succeed, but if it does, it's going to restore them fully to health. Option B, it will only restore them to, say, 85% health, but it's got a 99% chance of being successful and only a 1% chance of the patient dying, right? Say the doctor chooses option A and it works. Did the doctor do the right thing? <laughs> To everyone who's listening, I've already warned you about this, but I want you to be playing along at home as well because this difficulty, the the mental gears that you're going to be able to hear in me that are whirring away, I want you to be suffering along with me. So um, from a consequentialist, just the outcome, does the end justify the means? Um, I suppose in that form, yes. Um, you could do that a million times and keep on getting the one out of a hundred. Well, so the difficult thing to say is like intuitively when, when faced with the option before we know what's actually going to happen and you've got the two the medicines in front of you, like you'd probably advise the doctor to take option B, yes. right? Yes. I'd imagine Of course, so. of course, yeah. And that seems, that seems justifiable, right? It's, it seems like that should be the case. But the weird conclusion is that if he uses option B and it works and the patient's restored to 85% health, whether or not the doctor did the right thing completely depends on what would have happened if he'd administered drug A. Because if, had he administered drug A, it failed, then what the doctor did actually did maximize well-being, right? Because it was 85% health versus death. Whereas if it were the case that had he gone for option A, it would have worked, then what he's done has actually not maximized pleasure, right? Because instead, or well-being, let's say, uh, because instead of 85% health, he could have got 100% health. Now, the, the kind of easy answer to this is to say, well, Okay, so it's not actually about, you, you shouldn't do what will actually maximize pleasure. You should do what will probably maximize pleasure, right? But you can see we've already kind of adapted the theory, right? We've already gone yes. from kind of saying, well, obviously it's, it's about kind of what maximizes it. The right thing to do is whatever's going to actually maximize someone's well-being. But like, that's not always the case. And because now there's e a caveat even, in yeah, there. Yeah, even, even if like in this situation, yeah, had you done the other thing, it would have actually, like in, in reality, in the actual world, would have caused more more pleasure it's like it probably wasn't justified to do that right so yeah now now we're kind of talking about probabilistic utilitarianism right um does this continue but, to roll down so does probabilistic utilitarianism then split into some other subdivision some other subdivision well that it doesn't always divide kind of subdivide in that manner but there are there are lots of different kinds of divisions so i imagine there's just a tree branch that continues to go down my, my point is like for every yeah. situation that you encounter, do you then need to continue to create a um, sub-discipline within that that allows you to explore that particular type of solution? 
Pretty much. And, and luckily, because these questions have been being asked for thousands of years, you can find hundreds of essays on any particular kind of individual instance of, of a moral dilemma that you have. But like there's another there's a further distinction that might be made uh, between what you could call uh, what, what Roger Crisp at least calls the criterion of good and the decision procedure. Right. And these are two separate things. So the criterion of good is the, the criterion by which we determine whether or something whether or not something is good um, whereas the decision procedure is the way that we try to go bringing about that good right so take this utilitarian analysis where we've shown that you know you should act in a way that probably maximizes pleasure like that would be our decision procedure like we, we kind of decide intuitively that the way to determine how we decide what to do should be based on probabilistic utilitarianism right mm -hmm. But has it changed the actual criterion of good? If we offer a kind of abstract analysis of what good is, well, we don't think that good is what would prob. We don't think that good is the result of what would pr what you should probably do or something like that. We, we still think that, that the good thing is what maximizes pleasure and minimizes suffering, even if we've decided that the way we decide which actual action we're going to take is more probabilistic. So the criterion of good for utilitarianism is still what is actually most pleasurable. But the decision procedure leads us to probabilistic utilitarianism. The route to get and, there now has some form of discounting that's been thrown yeah. in it. And it seems a bit strange. Like, why is it that we've got an ethical theory where we've decided that this is what's good, but that's not what we should actually do in order to try and achieve that good, right? It seems like an inconsistency. Uh, it seems a little little strange, right? Um, further distinctions like uh, the, the classic kind of argument against utilitarianism is, is, is something like uh, an instance of a gang rape or something. It's like, well, don't, don't the pleasure of, of the many outweigh the suffering of the single individual? And some people would say, well, no, because the suffering is so great that even five people, you know, getting immense pleasure, it's not going to outweigh it. But if, if you think that, then just make it six people or seven people or a hundred people until the, the, the scales get balanced out. And some people would say something like, well, clearly it would still be wrong in all circumstances, right? So can we really say that the maximization of pleasure is the criterion of good, is how we should determine what we're, what we're doing if we've got a situation where it seems it doesn't matter how much kind of the, the scale of the well-being tips one way or the other, like we still wouldn't be in favor of this, right? Um, and it's like, yeah, you, you've now got to rethink things, right? And this is why people prefer sometimes a, a, a kind of action-based view of morality, um, known as deontology, right? Like the idea that the, the thing is, is wrong in, a, in of itself, right? It's not about the consequence, it's that gang rape is wrong. It's not wrong because of the suffering that it will bring about this person or something like that, it, it's just wrong, right? And so when faced with an ethical dilemma like that, you've kind of got two choices. You either have to further adapt or explain or analyze your utilitarianism, or maybe you have to adopt deontology, or maybe you have to accept the conclusion that gang rape is actually moral. And that's the least popular <laughs> line to go down, yeah. funnily enough. Um, but so, you know, the the utilitarian might say, okay, well, look, I mean, it's it's not about what will maximize pleasure in any given instance, but let's say, you know, uh, the best thing to do is to act according with a general rule, which if followed broadly would maximize pleasure. Right. So even if in that individual instance, you know, it would maximize pleasure to allow people to, to commit horrible crimes, like if we allowed everybody to live by that rule, suffering would would rise overall because of people being scared of being accosted on the street and people being scared of being robbed or raped, whatever it may be. So, OK, so so it now becomes look, the thing that we should do is act in accordance with rules, which if generally ab abided by would would maximize pleasure. 
Okay, so now our decision procedure has kind of morphed into you shouldn't do what always maximizes pleasure. You shouldn't even do what always probably maximizes pleasure. You you should do what what would probably maximize pleasure if we made it a rule that everyone followed. It's like we're getting a lot more kind of further detached. We're down from, the tree. The, we're down right. this little tree. And you notice everyone, the, yeah. the way that we've done that is simply by taking the ethical theory that, that we started with, that, that you kind of just kind of hypothesized at the beginning and just said, but that leads to this. Okay, so we should adapt it in this way, but then that leads to this, and that leads to this, and that leads to this, right? And like, yeah, the, these things kind of come out of nowhere. Like a lot of the time, someone will come up with an idea that just says like, like, what about this counterexample? Um, and it just it just kind of blows everyone away, and and everything has to be rethought. That that happened in the uh, in the philosophy of knowledge, um, because <laughs> one of the one of the most interesting things about philosophy to me is that nobody has a sufficient analysis really of what knowledge is. No one can really decide on, on what, what constitutes knowledge. Um, and the reason for that is because, well, let's let's think about what not. I mean, OK, let me let me just ask you just out of interest. Like, what do you think if, if you had to give like a definition of knowledge, what would it be like? How can you say that, you know, something is true? That sounds like two questions. Knowing that something is true versus knowing things. Well, I, I mean, it... to say, like, what, what's the definition of knowledge in, in either case? What does it mean to know something? An accumulation of understanding about the world. Okay, so so uh, basically, you now holding a belief about the world, which is represented accurately in reality. Okay, so which is actually true, right? So you holding a belief about the world, which is true. How, was I far off? As, as someone else said that someone famous. Well, well, you can you can test it, right? Because you could say something like, if somebody was in a room with no windows, and irrationally. They just believed it was raining, but it was raining. Did they know that it was raining? Because right? they believe that it's raining and it's true that it's raining, but do they know that it's raining? Well, clearly not. Okay, so so it can't just be kind of having a belief that's true. That can't be knowledge because you can accidentally hold a true belief. So then the definition, the popular definition became justified true belief. And you'll hear this phrase thrown around all the time. It's like, well, you have to you have to believe something is true. It has to be true, and you have to be justified in believing that it's true. What do they mean and by for, justified? As in, you have to you have to believe that it's true for good reasons. And people will offer different analyses of what what is a good reason and what's not. But like, so they'll say, for instance, just just kind of imagining that it's raining outside isn't a good reason. But if you look out of the window and you see that it's raining, that's good reason to believe that it's that it's raining. And so, if you look out the window, you see that it's raining, then you believe that it's raining. It is actually raining, and you're justified in that belief. So you know that it's raining. Voila, problem <laughs> solved, right? Enter Edmund Gettier, who just kind of blew the lid off everything. And as far as I as far as I recall, being being told this, he kind of he 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 broke this kind of somewhat flippantly. Like he he was going through like different problems that that seemed to just be kind of put to bed and just for the hell of it was just seeing if he could come up with counterexamples. And he wrote this really, really short paper. It's like two pages long and it just blew up the philosophy of knowledge, right? Got rid of this idea of justified true belief. Now I'll tell it to you now, right? Yes. This is this is yeah, kind of crazy. This, uh, this sounds a little bit like you know, around about springtime when you finally got rid of all of the shit old clothes that you don't <laughs> need anymore. And you've like yeah. put them all they're all in the charity shop. Your mum's taking them to Oxfam in those big sort of see through bags. And um and you and you're like right. All my socks are back in. These are only the socks that I wear. All the drawers are organised, colour coded, sized, everything else. And someone's just come in and gone, nah, 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 just grabbed all of your stuff yeah. and then just thrown it around the room. 
Yeah, it, it, it's also sometimes a bit like someone's kind of as as your mom is driving away with all of the clothes in the bag. Someone looks and goes, "You know that she's taken this with her," and you have to oh, oh, run after her because, yeah, because exactly. you realize that, that what, you, what you've said, yeah, what you've said has actually taken away this really important belief of yours, right? Because you <laughs> you're like, I think this is this is the right theory. This is the right way to go. And someone says. Yeah, but you know that if you if you do that, then this other belief you hold has to fly out the window, and you're like, oh crap, and you're running after it as fast as you can. Right? Yeah. Okay. So um, Edmund and this kind of Get- this kind of happened with knowledge, right? Getier. Getier. Yeah. Um. And such such cases as he presented in this paper are known now as Getier cases, um. Which essentially a Getier case is an instance of justified true belief that is not knowledge. Because again, we're working with counterexamples here. So if, if the theory is that, well, knowledge is justified true belief, then if you can offer an example of someone having justified true belief that isn't knowledge, then we have to throw out that theory and we yes. have to come up with something better. So Getia says, imagine, and I need to make sure, it's been a while since I've, since I, I want to make sure I get this right. Imagine somebody is waiting for, a, they're in a job interview. There are two guys in a job interview. <laughs> and uh, while they're waiting to hear back from from the interviewer, the uh, the person who he's across from is getting bored and he decides to, to take the coins that he's got in his pocket out and starts counting them on the table because he's bored. And he sees him counting 10 coins. Right, so he, he knows that this guy's got 10 coins in his pocket. Um, then what happens is the interviewer comes out and basically says, listen, uh, you know, I haven't spoken to the board yet, but it, but it seems like you're going to get the job, right? Like, we're, we're pretty sure you're going to get the job. Um, which... Uh, or, or sorry, he, the, it, we're pretty sure the other guy's going to get the job. The guy who was counting the coins. I say, we're pretty sure this guy's going to get the job. And uh, this kind of gives you a justified belief that this man's going to get the job. But one thing that you know, although you could say that, you know, maybe you, you have a justified belief that this man's going to get the job. Another thing that you have a justified belief in by derivative is you have a justified belief that the person who will get the job has 10 coins in his pocket. Because you've seen this guy counting out ten coins, and you've got a justified reason to think that he's gonna that he's going to um, to get the job, uh, and so you have a justified belief that this person that the person who gets the job is going to have ten coins in his pockets. Now something goes wrong, something like really unexpected, something unlikely, right? So this this it's not fair to say that you could have predicted this, but something something happens, and as it turns out, you end up getting the job. It's you, not the other guy. You get the job. And you think, oh, this is great. I've got the job. But just as it happens, you happen to have 10 coins in your pocket. Just by chance, you've also got 10 coins in your pocket. So your belief, you had a justified true belief that the person who gets the job would have 10 coins in his pocket. But it, it it, it seems like you can't say that you knew that because as it turns out, like, yeah, I guess it was true that the person who got the job had 10 coins in his pocket. And I guess you were justified in believing that. But like, surely that's not knowledge because clearly you kind of meant something else, right? Like that can't be knowledge. But this is an instance of justified true belief. And this actually happened to me once in in, in person because there are all kinds of Gettier cases that you can that you can construct. Um, and that's kind of a, a clumsier one to to understand, perhaps. But this happened to me once. Um, I was I was in a car and I was driving around a big corner, right? And so I saw this this child um, kind of above the hedge, like around the corner, kind of bobbing up and down and I looked over there and I thought she was riding a horse so as we're going around the corner I think oh man like there's a horse over there this that's quite exciting I was quite excited to see this horse right so we turn around the corner and turns out she's not on a horse she's walking she's on like her dad's back right but just by chance there also happens to be a horse in the field (laughs) now I I kid you not this actually happened to me and I, I sat there and I thought to myself 
this is a Gessier case because, <laughs> like, although, you know, maybe I wasn't entirely justified in believing that the girl was, was on a horse. I Like, seeing a horse that high up, bobbing along, I think, you know, I, I could form a justified belief that she was riding a horse. Um, and the belief was that there's a horse there. So I believed that a horse was there. It was true that a horse was there. And I was justified in believing that a horse was there. But did I know that the horse was there? Like, can you really say that I knew it before? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, Absolutely. this doesn't seem to count as knowledge, right? And so Gassier kind of is talking about these cases and people are like, oh, damn. So now we have to, now we have to change it up. Mum's gone just, off with the socks, yeah. Yeah, it, it, just, it, it just kind of completely upends everything that we think about the analysis of knowledge. And this is what happens in ethics all the time. Uh, <laughs> Some bastard people, comes in with a cricket, yeah. a cricket bat and breaks everything. Exactly. Um, but sometimes it can also work in people's favor, right? So an example would be with uh, an analysis of free will. Um, I'm someone who doesn't believe that free will exists, or rather I say I have an active belief that free will does not exist. Um, Why do you have that this, distinction? Uh, because it's one thing to be just unconvinced of something. It's, it's another thing to believe that it's false, right? So like, uh, let me put it this way. Agnostic this versus atheist. Pretty much, yeah. But it's, I would say that agnosticism is a, is a claim to knowledge, whereas theism is a claim to belief. Um, so I'd characterize it like this. This, this comes from my friend Matt Dillahunty. If I had a random jar of, of coins, I, w- I don't have anything I can use right now, um, and you didn't know how many coins were in the jar, and neither did I, and I said, look, I think there's an even number of coins in this jar. Would you believe me? No. But that doesn't mean you believe it's false, right? No. I just, I so, just don't, don't agree, exactly. I think. But this is the distinction. There's a distinction between not believing a proposition and believing that the proposition is false. So if you believe that, I was, if you believe that it was false, that means you believe there's an odd number. If you just don't believe that it's true, that means that you're kind of reserving judgment. So some people might say, I don't believe in free will. That is, I'm reserving judgment. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not convinced that free will exists. I'm saying I'm, I'm convinced that free will does not exist. But, and that's a whole other podcast. But... This has interesting implications for ethics because there's this common intuition that in order to be held responsible for something, you need to have freely chosen to do it. Right? It's like you can't be held responsible for something you didn't freely choose to do. Right? This is a, a general intuition that people uh, that people held uh, for the longest time, which seems to make a lot of sense. It's like how can you hold someone responsible if they if they can't have acted otherwise? Can you hold them morally responsible? And so if there's no free will. Basically, nobody's ever responsible for anything they do. Because they say, is, is there any morality left? Well, exactly. This is, this is the big problem. It's like, where does morality go? Um, but then again, people were coming up with counterexamples. Um, now, let me th- I, might have to, I might have to search, actually. Let me, let me try and find something here. But so, so generally speaking, the idea is that the, the principle could be kind of summed up as you can't be held morally responsible if it's the case that you couldn't have acted otherwise. So right. if you were a passenger on a train and a train kills a person, it's not your fault that the train killed the person. You didn't get to control the train. Yeah, but also uh, it might be something like if you trip over by mistake and you knock someone in front of a train and they get hit by a train, that's not really your fault because it was an accident that you fell over. And that's different from pushing them, potentially. But if you if you tripped through no fault of your own, or if someone else pushed you and you, you ended up pushing into them, it's like you're not morally responsible because you couldn't have acted otherwise. And it's based on intent. It seems like that appears to be the, the distinction. There. Yes, um, I suppose so. Uh, but Actually, this... no, it might not be because there's some constraints. You're saying couldn't have acted otherwise. Mm. So you might not have intended to do something, but you could have acted otherwise. 
Which yeah, this would is be this the, is the manslaughter versus murder versus accidental death. Yeah, pretty much. Um, okay, but then fine. it also gets more complicated. Um, of course, it does. Is there anything that doesn't? Alex? Uh man, uh, veganism is quite a simple. <laughs> <laughs> simple vegan, for it's everyone that's playing argument. vegan bingo at home that's three times today yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah how do you know if someone's vegan you know that's the that's the old point. like that kind of gets on my nerves it's like um oh how do you know if someone's got a nut allergy don't worry they'll tell you it's like yeah I'm go- of course i'm gonna bloody tell you it's like, i'm going for a meal with you like, i'm <laughs> gonna die yeah uh, okay so uh intent what's his thought experiment so uh harry frankfurt comes along and and basically the job is to to disprove this intuition is you've got to come up with a situation in which someone couldn't have acted otherwise and yet is still morally responsible for their action, right? Which seems like a hard task. Uh, one example that Peter Van Inwagen has given is of somebody who witnesses a crime and decides not to call the police, immorally so, right? Should call the police, but decides not to, right? Feeling a bit evil or something, you know, doesn't, doesn't want the person to see justice. But this person doesn't know that the phone lines were down anyway. So even if he tried to phone the police, he couldn't have phoned the police. So this person did not call the police, but he couldn't have acted otherwise because he couldn't have phoned the police. But we still hold him morally responsible, even though he couldn't have acted otherwise. That's right? a good example. Now, somebody might say something like, yeah, but look, I mean, clearly what matters here is like the intention. Right. It's, it's, the, it's the intent. It's kind of the person's because he still could have tried to call the police and then the phone lines would have been down. But like it, Harry Frankfurt discusses loads and loads of very particular cases but one of the one of the examples you could potentially give is that you've got somebody who uh is like a neuroscientist and is able to like kind of is is hooked up to your brain in such a way that he can kind of prod your brain and make you do certain things and change your mental states and he basically says um you know let's say you're you're voting in a in an election or something and one of the candidates is some kind of genuine tyrant and it's like it would be immoral to vote for this person and the the neuroscientist essentially kind of scans your brain and sees that if you're going to vote for the for, for the person of, of your own accord, he just lets you do it, right? But if he realizes from your brain activity that you're about to go and vote for the other person, he will kind of fiddle about with your brain in such a way that you become motivated to go and, and vote for the, for the other person. So, you know, let's say that you, you go to vote for the good party and this person kind of hooks up to your brain and changes your motivations and makes you want to go and do the thing. You'd say that person's not responsible for voting for the bad person because it's not their fault that the person was was in their brain. But like, what if the person goes and votes for the bad person of their own accord? Because like, clearly they, they're morally responsible because they, they've freely chosen of their own accord to go and vote for this this bad tyrant, right? But they couldn't have acted otherwise. Had they tried to vote for the other one, they would have been motivated to vote for him anyway. So it's like, can we really say they're morally responsible? Well, intuitively, we want to say, yeah, they're still morally responsible. But if you're morally responsible, despite the fact that you couldn't have acted differently, you couldn't have even wanted differently, then we seem to have a counterexample to the case uh, or to the proposition that, you know, you can only be held responsible if you couldn't, if if you could have acted otherwise, right? Um, And again, like, this leads to a wealth of discussion and there are lots of different responses to this like i've i've got my responses to it other people have their responses to it uh and i think there's like satisfactory responses to this but at the very least you can see that it's not as simple as people originally thought right because you the, the great thing about ethics is you can come up with incredibly contrived thought experiments you, you can come up with the most ridiculous scenarios in the world and someone can say that's the most unrealistic thing i've ever heard but it doesn't matter because if it contradicts your theory then it means the theory is wrong right? it doesn't matter how how 
how crazy the, the thought experiment has to be. It's kind of like when people are talking about utilitarianism and they say, okay, but what if we painlessly kill somebody, right? And they suffer no pain. Someone says, well, that's still bad because people around them would suffer. And they say, okay, well, what if, you know, what if we kill somebody who's like homeless and has no family and no one cares about them? We say, okay, yeah, but that's still wrong because someone has to do the killing and that and kind of that that might kind of affect them. And they say, okay, okay, so what if we like what if we like are in a cabin in the woods and we painlessly kill someone and the person who does the killing like immediately forgets and the person who makes them forget doesn't know why they're making big and it's like it's getting a bit it's getting a bit contrived, it's getting it's getting a bit crazy. But the the thing is, like, if in that situation you've still got a counterexample. If 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 the if the counterexample is like logically coherent, as far fetched as it may be, it can still expose the flaw in the ethical thinking, right? The battleground so, the battleground of ethics is um really fast moving, I'm guessing, based on that. Like you think about science, you have to construct an experiment, perhaps even get some funding, put some pants on, leave the house do the actual thing, analyze the data. Whereas all that you really need to do here is like have an armchair and a brain. Mm-hmm. And, and you can... It's one of the great things about ethics is you can do it all by yourself and you don't need any funding for it. But at the same time, it is, it's also very slow moving because the basic questions have been the same questions for thousands of years. It's just like somebody will come up with an interesting particular thought experiment that requires various different responses or a thought experiment that ends up having quite impactful... Uh, or, or quite an impact in the rest of philosophy or, or something like that. But like the fundamental question at the basis hasn't hasn't really changed. Like modern developments can inform our ethical discussions, but they don't really change the nature of them. You know, for example, when you develop technology, you can start talking about living in a simulation and this kind of stuff. But like the question is still the same. So the thought experiment might be like the experience machine of hooking someone up to the matrix where they experience more pleasure, but it's not real. Um, yeah, sure. That's kind of a, that's a new thought. But the idea of kind of somehow replicating uh, reality is not new. You know, like you, you, we've just moved from Descartes and his evil demon that, that makes you think you're living in a particular world to, to it being done by the Matrix, right? So like particular thought experiments and the way that they're expressed can can change quickly. Um, but the fundamental questions are, are still the same. Um, so, so has, it been, has it been quite a while since anything revolutionary in terms of a question to be asked as opposed to a criticism of an existing question has come up? I mean, you you'll tend to kind of you tend to know when that happened because this is this is what can make people famous when when they come up with a way of kind of putting things together. Um, a lot of people consider like the kind of most recent really important person to have been someone like Immanuel Kant. Um, like it, the the thing is like it's difficult because it's it's so kind of uh, it's so abstract, right? Like it, it, it's difficult to determine whether what someone's saying is actually new or if it's just a synthesis of, of previous ideas or something like that. Um, but generally speaking, the progress is slow, right? Like the, the big steps that are taken in ethics will be like on a very, very particular question on a very, very particular point of ethics. Like if somebody manages to prove somehow philosophically that we're not living in a simulated reality, that would be a really important and, and, uh, kind of philosophical discovery of how we'd managed to argue that um, that would have wide-reaching implications, right? For instance, if someone kind of discovered it just so happens that I've got a philosophical argument that says that we can't replicate consciousness. Because you know the simulation argument of Nick Bostrom says that, you know, humanity will get to the point where it can simulate human consciousness and that consciousness will be able to simulate consciousness and so on and so on and so on. And, and the likelihood that you happen to be in base reality is, is minimal, it's tiny. To interject um, there, did you watch the episode of Joe Rogan where Nick tries to explain that to him? 
I, I, I didn't, but I'm, we've talked about that. Yes, you said that you, I brought it up. Anyone that's listening, like getting... so you'll, you'll have heard me talk about superintelligence a number of times, one of my favourite books. Recently read The Precipice by Toby Ord, who I met, uh, texted you about <laughs> and said, is he one of your uh, lecturers at uni? Uh, the Precipice by Existential Risk. He's from the same Future of Humanity Institute. Nick Bostrom, guy that I've read for t- tons and tons of time, sits down with my favourite podcaster, Joe Rogan. I think, fucking hell, this is great. This is going to yeah. be brilliant. Um, Joe simply does not get the simulation hypothesis, which is like Nick's sort of, or at least one of Nick's crowning works. Um, and it's fairly straightforward to understand. And then mm-hmm. for 45 minutes, continues to force the audience down the same groundhog sort of yeah. exchange. Um, so yeah, if you want to find out about Nick Bostrom, do not watch his episode with Joe, <laughs> with Joe Rogan unless you want to tear your eardrums out. Um, so yes. Uh, yeah, you can just read the paper that he put out. Um, precisely. There's there's one interesting thing I was thinking there, that the discovery of knowledge mm. in philosophy or ethics, where does that come from? Or what is that discovery? Because it's not like we have discovered a new star, this is a particular new type of yeah. element, this is a new proton. It's somehow universal and existent. Mm and yet is also manifest by someone's thoughts and also quite sort of transient and ephemeral. I think you can think of it in the same way. This, this is probably the most helpful way to think of it, potentially, is to think about it in terms of like mathematical uh, discoveries. Because, you know, maths is kind of a language that we invent to describe things that we believe are analytically true. Um, and it's essentially tautologies. You know, to say that one plus one equals two is kind of the same as just saying two is two. Um, you can make mathematical discoveries because people kind of have, a, they, they put together equations and I'm not a mathematician, but you know, like you can kind of make discoveries by putting different propositions together and seeing, and seeing how they work. Right. Um, and it's weird to think that you can kind of discover things in this manner, in this kind of weird abstract kind of sense. But like, really I think the same thing is roughly going on. Like ethical movements are made when, when people kind of realize implications of beliefs we already hold or realize a new way of justifying them or something like that or realize an inconsistency that we that we hold um most of the kind of most of the kind of ethic when, when you say something like ethical progression people tend to think of like in practice they tend to think of things like uh, slavery being abolished or or the vegan movement that's number four yeah. uh and like yeah sure but that there are two different things we could be talking about because there's that kind of ethical progression um, which is where we, we we like to think, oh, well, we're we're practically changing to live up to like the objective ethical standard that we've constructed or, or, or that exists or however you want to frame it. Um, but then another question is like, what about the frame itself? Like, can, can we kind of have a development in, in that frame? And sometimes the development in the frame leads to developments in practice. But this is this is one of the questions that will help you determine whether you think objective morality exists. It's like, do we discover ethical truths or do we invent them? Do we do we kind of come across objective truths about the way we should behave or do we just kind of decide uh, on on a new way of living uh, to be consistent with our preferences or something like that like that's that's one of the most fundamental questions to to figure out whether object whether ethics actually objectively exists um but is that the, the is that the question that Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris got a little bogged down with during their live debate I think potentially um, because they they would both. I'm not as familiar with Jordan Peterson's as I am Sam Harris's morality, but I think both believe in objective morality, but they have different justifications for it. And Sam Harris's is just is trash. I mean, it's 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 awful. It's just it it doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, and I think Jordan Peterson was kind of trying to poke holes in it because Sam Harris kind of says, well, 
well-being should be the basis of morality um, because we all care about well-being. And someone says, yeah, but like, why is well-being good? Why is suffering bad? And Sam Harris says, well, if you don't believe me, go and put your hand on a hot stove. And it's like, dude, you're missing. You're really missing the point here. It's not like I don't doubt that I wouldn't like putting my hand on a hot stove. But why does that make it objectively wrong? Like, because for it to be objectively wrong, it would be kind of wrong regardless of what, what I think about it. It doesn't matter if I prefer it or not. It's like it, it's wrong of its own accord. Somehow, if no human beings existed, it would still be wrong to inflict suffering, even if there's no one to inflict the suffering upon, something like that. Like, mm. And Sam Harris kind of doesn't doesn't address that, and I think Jordan Peterson kind of pokes, tries to poke holes in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's I poking d- holes in the justification, not, not the idea that ethics is objective. Did you see, I'm going to guess that you probably won't have done because you're not on social media as much as me, but Sam is <laughs> releasing... Uh, making sense book which is a synthesis of things he's spoken about on the podcast he's doing a tim ferris mm. did you see i didn't see that no. it's come out today so it got announced oh, pre- really pre-order available today um uh so yeah it's just the, the tim ferris model man have a conversation write a book about the conversations then have a conversation about the book that you wrote about the conversations and then yeah. you just continue to keep on going. Keeps then going on, you, yeah. you monetize. So, okay, man, let's, let's, let's have some of your favorite uh, thought experiments that we might have not, uh, might have not covered yet. Anything that sort of uh, you think is, is going to bend people's minds a little bit as they try and answer it. Well, ethically speaking, I mean, okay. So I, I remember when we, um, when you asked me to come on, I, I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk more about meta ethics or if you wanted to, because you said you wanted to just go through some like ethical dilemmas. So like there are a few that you can, that you can think of and, and there are different ways in which they're difficult. So for instance, um, consider the fact that uh, this would be, this would be a demonstration that sometimes the consequences of uh, a certain thing that we think is good are actually, that they have unexpected consequences. So j- broadly speaking, we think that it's, good to educate people the more educated people are the better but education rate is directly correlated to suicide rate right the more educated a society becomes the higher the suicide rate so is it actually immoral to educate a society more if it's going to lead to more suicidality like do we are we placing a value on knowledge itself do we not value knowledge because of what it does for humanity like, and do we have the right to essentially kind of risk a, a rise in suicide in order to educate other people? Like, I don't know. It's like you, you don't necessarily think of that consequence. Another example of like an unintended consequence might be something like I remember I, I went to a talk once about um, uh, the ethics of of markets, right? What can be sold and what can't. So things like organ selling and prostitution and sex work, right? And I think broadly speaking, in a liberal society, people are, are in favor of sex work. They say, look, you 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 are it's your body. You can sell it as you please. Like you should be able to do that. And, you know, I, I, was, I was roughly in agreement, but I'm listening to this talk and I'm thinking, OK, so let's say we legalize prostitution. There's, there's a consequence that people don't necessarily think about. Right. If you if you become like a like a like a merchant of sex. Um, <laughs> that sounds we, like a really good name for a band. Yeah. Or a, or a street name, maybe um, we have. We have laws that exist that say that if you're a merchant, if you're selling a product, you don't get to discriminate who you sell your product to. Right now, it's it's slightly different with things like baking a cake that has a certain message on it. That was a big controversy, but that's because you're kind of you're producing a specific, you know, uh, a specific kind of designed to order thing. Right? It's not just a general product that you're offering. So the person who baked that cake basically said. I'm not going to bake a cake that says like happy marriage to a gay couple because that goes against my beliefs, but I, I can't deny them service 
to like a product that anybody else could buy because they're gay. So if they came in and bought one of my pre-made cakes, I can't deny service to them and I wouldn't do, right? Now, did they make that distinction? Uh, yeah, the, the the cake seller definitely did. Oh, so he actually had a um, fairly good sort of consistent grounding philosophy. Yeah, he, in terms he, of... he said, look, like it, it's not it's not about like I'm not going to sell to a gay person. That's not what it is. It's I'm not going to produce like uh, essentially like a, a piece celebration of celebration of that. Yes. In in the same way that like although you know I wouldn't want to draw an equivalency between these two, it, it works by analogy. If someone came in and said, you know, can you bake a cake that says the N word on it or something, you'd, you'd be like. I don't. I don't want to make that because it goes against my my beliefs. And someone could be like, "But you're disc- you're discriminating against me because you know because I'm black and I'm ordering a cake." It's like, no. It's like it, it's because of what you're, you're you're making me do. Now, obviously, I'm not trying to say that you know <laughs> that you should be as uncomfortable writing the N word as saying happy happy wedding to a gay couple. <laughs> but I'm saying like the the kind of basic principle is that there's a difference between refusing someone service because of who they are and refusing them service because of what they're asking you to do. But yes. if you're selling sex just as a general product. We have laws that say that you can't discriminate, right? You can't refuse someone's service because they're gay or because they're black or because they're female or something. But you should be able to refuse sex at any time for any reason, right? Like if you're having sex, like in the porn industry or something, like you should be able to, you should be allowed to determine whether you have sex with men or not, right? You should be able to decide whether you have sex with someone who's black or white or someone who you find attractive or don't find attractive, someone who's disabled. Like it it is your is your basic right to determine who you have sex with and who you don't. But if you're kind of selling a, a general product of sex, does that mean that you kind of are forced to offer your services to men as well as women? Like, if you became a prostitute, Chris, could I try and hire you? And you say, look, I don't, I don't serve men. I could take you to the Supreme Court and say, well, look, you're discriminating against me on the basis of sex. It's like, that's an interesting implication that people don't generally think about. And I raised it with the guy giving the talk, and he kind of didn't really have an answer for it, because I don't think it's a, a particularly common objection to bring up. I know that... <laughs> I discovered actually after the fact that one of my tutors for practical ethics had written a paper to this effect discussing this exact question of like, like, here's a kind of interesting reason that maybe we shouldn't be in favor of the legalization of prostitution. And it's not what you think. It's not like, oh, it's it's lewd and it's bad. It's like, it's like you're going to either have to create a, something of like an entire new moral legal category about denying people a service on the basis of sex or disability or attractiveness. I mean, imagine refusing someone a service because you don't think they're attractive like this is this is brand new territory but if you don't do that then you're essentially saying this person must be compelled to have sex with anybody who wants it if they if they pay the right price and that that seems equally uncomfortable so it's like it's maybe not as simple as you first thought isn't it, isn't it interesting where we have things that we're incredibly familiar with that are um artifacts of our heritage as human beings, like way, modes of thinking, the, the um, implicit assumption that you should only have sex with people that you want to have sex with. And yet at the same time, when that comes crashing into something that we also know really, really well, which is a more modern invention, mm. like free markets and... And uh, equality and equal treatment, right? And, yeah. And- when, when those two things sort of come crashing together, you're like, uh, hang on, I'm, I feel like I'm supporting both teams here. Like how the yeah. fuck, how the fuck is this working? And people try to kind of people might try to wriggle out of it or, or synthesize, and they might say something like, "Well, if you agree to be a prostitute, then then you agree to offer your services to anybody." So it's like, you know, we're not just saying anybody has to have sex with whoever asks it. It's, it's like if you enter into a contractual agreement that says you are a prostitute, you now have to have sex with whoever wants. But it's like, are you saying that someone can like sign off their consent? Are you saying that someone can like sign a contract which says I am no longer able to consent in any of my sexual encounters so long as the person is paying? It's like 
I don't think that's what you want either. Right? It's like, and maybe we might think that although every instinct says something like, well, your body is your private property and you should be able to, you should be able to sell it all you like. You should be able to do what you like and make money with it as you like. We might think that we value our principles of equality under, uh, under like the free market so, so highly that it's worth sacrificing this, this other kind of principle that people should be able to sell their bodies. And we say, actually, no, like we're not going to allow people to sign away their consent. And so we're not going to legalize prostitution. But it, it's like every argument that you hear in the popular discourse against prostitution is like, it, 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 it's wrong, man. It's like, you, you shouldn't, man, that's like, that's like, that could be your daughter, man. It's like, it, it's kind of, it hasn't got the right focus, right? There are better arguments that you could be making against, <laughs> against you... uh, the legalization of prostitution that's, that's for the benefit of uh, the person who'd be, or, or the rights of the person who's selling it. Like, it's a difficult question. It's worth, you know, your, your listeners kind of just mulling it over, just thinking like, what are the implications of those kinds of beliefs? Like, there, there are so many kind of hidden around the corner that you might not be, uh, you might not be in, in, entirely aware of. No, I, I agree, man. What else you got? Anything else that you've got in the tank that you've been uh, thinking Here's about? Here's one of my favorite else? ethical dilemmas. This is one of my favorite ethical dilemmas that was given to me before I came to university. I was like, I was like 16, 17. I was in a pub um, and I met somebody who was studying physics and philosophy at Oxford. And it was the first time I met him and, and he just kind of, he's a bit of a strange man. He just turns to me and says, here's one for you. Okay. And this is always, always a good way to start, th- isn't it? This question remained with me to this day, right? And I want you to answer this honestly. And and you, you know, you you might yeah, you might be kind of um exposing some immorality by answering this honestly, but I want you to try your best. Would you rather kill an innocent person and then immediately forget about it or not kill the innocent person but live the rest of your life thinking that you had? The second one. You'd rather not kill the person but live the rest of your life thinking that you had. Yeah, probably because I haven't fully thought through just how painful it would be to believe that I would have killed someone. Right. Now, so this is the this is the answer that I think pe- people often give this answer at first because it kind of sounds like the right one to do. Um, and maybe you actually, maybe it would actually be better for you. Um, after thinking about it for the longest possible time, <laughs> I, the, the, the majority of people tend to kind of say, well, actually, I think I'd have to say that I'd rather kill the person than immediately forget. Because like, if you're talking about like, if, as you say, like, it's like, you don't know what it's like to live that life, believing that you've actually killed that person. But there are, there are two different questions at, 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 uh, on the table here. The first is what you would do. And the second is what you should do. Right. So like, I think most people, when they think about it deeply enough, realize that because of the amount of sacrifice that they're making, um, they should uh, they they would probably kill the person and then forget because they just can't deal with the with the with the kind of backlash of that um but that's a separate question from what they from what they should do and maybe they shouldn't kill the innocent person but you could also say like you know should we expect somebody to essentially sacrifice a life of well-being for the life of another person like do we have the right to expect that of a person or do they have a right to say that you know if i don't commit this action it's going to have this horrible impingement on my on the rest of my life and I actually have a right to kind of look after my own interests first, even if my own interests are kind of lesser than another person's. In the same way that if you uh, decide not to give to charity, that's your right to do so. But like the, the 25 pounds that you're going to save is so much, is worth so much less to you than it would be worth to people for whom you could buy mosquito nets or something and, and save them from getting malaria. Um, but we say that even though like the the benefit that it gives you is is much kind of is much less than the benefit it would give the other person like you have a right to look after yourself first and look and and look to your interests first and maybe you could say the same thing in this instance uh, i'm not entirely 
sure. Um, but it's a it's a difficult question to think. If you were really in that situation, what do you think you would do? It's hard, man. I mean, the the question here, and it seems like this happens with a lot of it, is whether or not you're able to take a third party perspective and the 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 would versus the should, i.e., mm -hmm. the armchair philosophy versus the actual brats uh, uh, brass roots action. Those two things often, I'm going to guess, come into conflict with each other because there isn't a third-party perspective. If we are talking about you doing the thing, there is no third-party perspective for you to take. There is only in the should, not the would. Right. But if, I mean, if morality is objective, then we should say, like, it doesn't matter what you would do. Like, there, there is a, there's a right answer to the question regardless of what you find yourself actually doing. Like uh, in the famous trolley problem, um, when you ask somebody whether they would pull the lever and whether they'd push the fat man off, fat man off the bridge, you know, the, the, the famous thought take experiment. Us, take us through it. So, uh, you know, the, the trolley is, is going down the track and it's about to run into five workers who are working on the track. And you can pull a lever and it will divert the, the, track, uh, the train onto a track that's got a single person working. So it will kill one person instead of the five. And the question is, you know, should you pull the lever or would you pull the lever? And most people say, yeah, of course I pull the lever. I'm going to I'd rather, you know, the train goes into one person than five people. The principle being, yeah, OK, so I'll sacrifice one person's life to save five innocent people's life. Fine. But then you ask the question, what if you're walking along and there's no lever and the train's going towards five people on the track, but there's this really fat man walking across the bridge. And if you push him off the bridge, he's going to land on the train. It's going to kill him, but it's going to stop the train. Would you push the fat man? And people are like, well, no, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think I have the right to do that. But it's like, hold on, why not? Like, why is it that you're willing to kind of pull a lever that kills one person to save five people, but you're not willing to push the man to kill the man, save the five people? And Michael Sandel, who's um, a philosopher at Harvard, one of the most famous philosophers living, he's got a great book, by the way, called Justice, um, which is a fantastic introduction to ethics. Like, I, I don't feel I've done a very good job here of like actually going through the various ethical theories. We've just kind of been mulling here and there. That's but if you want, like, a stuff. If you want like a really good introduction to just what ethics is, the different ways of thinking about it, Justice by Michael Sandel is a fantastic book. And and in a, in a lecture that you can watch on YouTube, he gives the trolley problem, which is a great starting point for practical ethics. It's one of the first things that people will will talk about. And and he's talking to his students, and and he's asking this question, and and the student kind of says, but you know, I don't want to. It's different because there's a difference between me like um, if if you if you're like driving the train. So Michael Sandel says you're driving the train, and you can. You can turn the you can turn the wheel and it goes into one person instead of five people, and that's instead of the lever, right? So most people say, yeah, they they would turn they would turn the wheel, they'd go into the one person instead of the five, but they wouldn't push the fat man. And one of the students says, but look, the, I mean, the difference is like there's a difference between like turning the wheel and like actually like getting your hands on a man and pushing him off the thing. And so Michael Sandel says, well, what if the fat man is kind of on a trap door, and the way to open the trap door is to grab a big wheel and you just turn the <laughs> wheel, <to> the <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, yeah, I still probably wouldn't do that, right? And but again, the reason I bring this up is to say, like, I think it's fair to say that maybe like most people would would pull the lever, but wouldn't push the fat man. But surely if, if the principle is the same, then you should do the same thing in either situation. Or is there a difference? Like, you know, what's going on there? And interestingly, like there have been studies done where, where people have undergone an MRI scan whilst being asked the trolley problem. And when they think about like the lever. Uh, so, OK, so so the people who say that they would both pull the lever and push the fat man, when they're thinking about the question, the parts of their brain associated with rationality are lighting up. 
For the people who say that they would pull the lever but wouldn't push the fat man, when they're thinking about the questions, the emotional parts of the brain are lighting up, right? Implying that actually, yeah, no, no, the, the, the reason you wouldn't push the fat man is actually because of like, you know, your emotional tendency to what you would and wouldn't do rather than your rational thinking about what you should and shouldn't do. Mm. But okay, there are some situations in which I can give you two situations which are like almost exactly the same and yet you would say that one is right and one is wrong. Um, let's say, for example, you're an ambulance driver and you've got two people in the back and they need to get to hospital immediately, right? And if you don't get there immediately, they're going to die. Yeah. As you're driving along, you look out the window and you see a boulder just rolling and rolling towards an innocent man, right? Now, what you could do is you could stop the ambulance, you could get out of the ambulance, you could push the boulder out of the way and you'd save the innocent man. But you shouldn't do that, right? You should stay driving because then the two people in the back of the ambulance are going to die. So you stay, you stay in the ambulance, you think, I wish I could save that man, but I can't. I'm willing to like allow him to die so that I can make sure that these two guys get to hospital, right? Fair? Would you yeah. say that that's a fair analysis? Fairly busy, busy day. day. Yeah. <laughs> Hope that guy gets a pay rise. Um, but now imagine, same situation, except this time you're, you're driving the ambulance, two people in the back, and there's a boulder in the way. It's in the road. And the only way to, to keep moving forward is to, is to kind of push the boulder so that it rolls and kills an innocent man. Are you allowed to do that? Seems like maybe not. <laughs> Like, hmm, I don't know if an ambulance driver was riding along, like, he, like that would be a good thing to do. Like, you just kind of bump into the thing and, yeah. and make it hit the other person. You'd probably say no, but like, what's the difference? Like, what is the difference between, between allowing a boulder to kill an innocent man, save the people in the back, and pushing the boulder into the innocent man, save the people in the back? In both situations, you decide whether the innocent man lives or dies, and the basis on which you make that decision is, you know, with reference to the people in the back of the ambulance. So what is the difference? Is it not the continuation, the, the point at which you enter into the story and the effect that you have moving forward? Sure. So this is the distinction uh, of doing and allowing. And this is where this... Hey, I've stumbled upon from. some ethics. Stumbled yeah, upon well, some this, I mean, this is, this is kind of the, the, the analysis that's given. It's like, well, there's a difference between doing and allowing. There's a difference between allowing a bad thing to happen and being the cause of a bad thing to happen. But my God, like... It gets it gets worse. It gets it gets even more complicated than that because like you've got to decide like how are you defining the difference between doing and allowing? Like what what really is the difference there? For example, you know, if I walk up to somebody who is attached to a life support machine and I unplug them, have I killed them or have I allowed them to die? <laughs> because like, you know, the machine was was okay. So maybe you could think something like, if you're the doctor, yeah. And you're the one who plugs in the machine, then by taking out the machine, you're allowing them to die because they were going to die anyway. You're stopping them from dying by plugging it in. When you unplug it, you allow them to die. But if the doctor plugs it in and then walks away and then another person comes in and unplugs it, they're probably killing the person, right? That would be. But, but what? what why? Like, surely it can't be the difference between doing and allowing can't be like who's who's doing the action, right? That can't <laughs> yeah. be it. But like that seems to that seems to be a, a, a difficult intuition to to. Um, to, to think about, but also like, I mean, um, I, I wrote a paper about this once for, for one of my tutors and, and basically said like, the distinction is a bunk one. It doesn't make any sense. Like if I take it to its extreme, I could say something like, if I come up and slit your throat, I'm not killing you. I'm allowing you to die because like, I'm just removing the barrier of your blood. That's kind of keeping it from like <laughs> spurting everywhere. Right? Like 
it, it, it's a similar it's a similar kind of thing. Like for instance, you could say take the life support machine. If instead of like a, a mechanical exterior electronic thing that plugs into the wall, let's say that we manage to kind of grow a cellular life support machine. Right. So someone's on life support and we, and we design a kind of technology that says we can we can take like a pill that they take that causes them to like grow a certain kind of organ or something which acts in the same way as the life support machine does. If that person just walking down the street minding their own business and I come up to them with a knife and I just cut it out of them. Surely I've killed them. But like it's the same it's the same thing. Right? All I've actually done is removed the barrier that was keeping them alive. So I've just allowed them to die. Right now, earlier from the thought experiment with the ambulance driver, it seems to be that there is a moral distinction, not just like a like a physical, because right now we're talking about the non-moral distinction. We're just talking about what is the descriptive difference between doing and allowing. But once you've done that, you then have to determine whether it's morally relevant or not. So we've already seen that like there seems to be a morally relevant difference between doing and allowing. It seems to be that allowing is less bad than doing. But then like, what what, what does that mean for like, Kind of cutting out someone's organ or something like is that is that not as bad as somehow killing them in another way or something like that like it's it's like it's it's not as simple as people think it is right because this is this is the expl explanation we go through because i give you the thought experiment with the boulder and your answer is well i mean surely the difference is that in one case you're kind of putting yourself into the situation you're doing rather than allowing but it's like yeah but i could i could say the same thing about slaying someone's slaying someone's throat or something like that right like I'm not entirely sure that's the case, but also um, sometimes we would think that uh, allowing someone to die is just as bad as killing them. So, for instance, Peter Singer gives the example of the child drowning in the in the shallow pond. Imagine, for example, uh, this is his it's a famous example from him. If you're walking down the street and there's like a really shallow pond next to you and there's a child drowning in the shallow pond. And you could go and save that child really easily, but you decide not to. Because you don't want to ruin your shoes. You just bought them and they cost you 30 quid. You're an immoral monster, right? That's a horrible thing to do. So it's really, really bad because you've allowed this child to die because you've refused to intervene at the cost of 30 pounds. But that's what you do every single time you refuse to give 30 pounds to charity. The child isn't drowning in front of you. The child is starving on the other side of the world. And you're saying, no, I'm not going to intervene because I want to keep my 30 pounds. What's the difference between that and walking past the child in the shallow pond and saying, I'm not going to intervene because I don't want to ruin my shoes, which cost me 30 pounds? It's distance. It's a, a lack of directness or feeling like you are direct. This is how it so manifests, so, at least in people. So let's take that one by one. I mean, take the distance case. Okay, so a child um, drowning in Ethiopia is on the other side of the globe. Okay, what if they're drowning in Morocco? What about Spain? What about France? What about Wales? What if it was like, what if it was just, what if it was like in the next village along? What if it was like next door and you had to kind of go outside and knock on the door and get the, like, how close, how close does that have to be? Like what, surely distance doesn't make a difference if like the money that you can give will, will get to its destination easily. It's not like you have to go over to Ethiopia or something. It's like you can just donate the money online. You can do it from your laptop. It, it would be less effort for you to donate 30, 30 pounds to Oxfam than to go and like save a child from drowning in a puddle, right? But we seem to think that you have to save the child from the puddle, but you don't have to give money to charity. And Peter Singer uses this to say that essentially you taking 30 pounds that you could have, you, you refusing to send life-saving treatment to a child for no good reason is just the same as you 
posting them cyanide as you're just putting some cyanide in, in the mail and, and shooting it over there and killing them like yeah, it's like eater. it's like what is the moral difference why is it that just because in one case you're allowing them to die because you don't want to intervene and in the other case you're causing them to die because you're actually doing the intervention like what's the moral difference here why is one okay and one not why do you have the right to allow a child to die of malaria but you don't have the right to allow a child to die from suffocation from drowning it's interesting when you come across people who have thought about this stuff thoroughly and then have the conviction of their efforts to go after it so two examples first one being yourself you became convinced of bing bing fifth time lucky veganism um through a like a just an armchair philosophy sort of thought framework desperately asked youtube to see if someone out there could find a rebuttal that would yeah. mean that you didn't have to go vegan then didn't stuck to your guns and went vegan the other equivalent is toby ord this guy that wrote the precipice and in his episode with sam harris uh, he said toby ord and i quote his publishers bloomsbury who owe me an absolute shit ton because i keep putting their authors on the show <laughs> he's not doing press the week he went on i'm not no 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 no. he's not not doing press he's just not doing press that isn't sam harris Anyway, not not that I'm bitter, Toby, <laughs> if you're listening. Um, uh, he is one of the key figures in the effective altruism movement. Yeah. Have you seen this where people commit like twenty, like mm -hmm. significant portions of their earnings for the rest of their yeah. life, and then they find the, the most effective charity that they could give it to, they maximize the value out of every pound, and people are giving like, real significant portions of yeah. their wealth forever and they're like tied into like the sort of lifetime contract thing um he's another person similar to yourself presumably has gone through thought experiments like this surrounded by people yeah. like fucking nick bostrom who's just bending his mind and um yet yeah, the the end result is you know 10 percent, 20 percent of his salary for the rest of time to yeah well, this is that this is the thing. Like the the reason we do ethics, we should remember, is to figure out the right way to live, right? This this is essentially why we do ethics to figure out what the right thing to do is. If if you're just doing ethics in such a way and you think of it as kind of a a philosophical play thing, then like fine. But I I think it's far more beneficial to use ethics to determine how you actually live your life. So if you come to a conclusion, and it seems really abstract, right? It seems like what do you mean driving an ambulance and you've got people and then there's a, like a rock just materializes and you got but you realize that by answering that question that can lead you to the conclusion ah oh, so i should give up 10 percent of my income to charity <laughs> dangerous it's some like, of the things that it's you like said to say. it's like actually yeah no that that makes sense you know and, and maybe you should then do that but then if you become convinced that that's the case then it's like then act act in accordance with it if, if somebody if you become ethically convinced that it's wrong to kill animals, then stop killing animals. If you become ethically convinced that there's no difference between refusing to give 30 quid to Oxfam and, you know, refusing to, to save the child in the puddle, then give 30 quid to Oxfam. You know, like it should be actually determining our actions. Albert Camus in The Myth of Sisyphus says that for the man who does not cheat, what he determines to be true must determine his actions. And that sentence almost single-handedly made me go vegan. <laughs> what a bastard. I am um, going to tell you a story because I didn't ever get around to it. I texted you while yeah. I was in Ibiza. Um, about yeah. this but um, I was away with Ricky my buddy uh, we were having a great day we'd had um, a, a day sort of exploring the island we went out for dinner with the, the photographer and his missus that we were there on the night time she's vegan he's keto and uh, Ricky is a ex-RAF um, 
a soldier and uh, like classic sort of CrossFit guy. Um, and I found myself promulgating your position, putting forward your moral philosophy position on veganism um, as I had two non-vegans and one vegan sat around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was saying all of the stuff that there's, what is the characteristic that an animal lacks that if a human lacked blah blah and everything that we went through if you haven't if you don't know what i'm talking about check out alex's channel or check out his last episode on my show which will be linked in the show notes below um and i found myself and then his missus piped up and was like so what like why do you still eat meat yeah and it it came back to the the um practical implication which i think we keep coming back to and i keep um trying to impress on you because i think that it is at least for me, the kryptonite that has meant something I'm convinced of hasn't been something that I've taken as a lifestyle change, mm. which is the amount of effort that is required to do it um, is simply, practically, highly inconvenient. And because the path of least resistance and there's a lot of inertia to overcome with that, uh, that I tend to not do it. But I said, I held my hands up and it's weird when you say something that's kind of in homage to someone that's a friend, but they're not there to hear it. Um, which is kind of an interesting sort of situation <laughs> yeah. to be a part of. But I was like, look, man, like I know that I'm living out of alignment with things that I know to be true. Right. Like I believe, I believe that I increasingly now convinced that, as you say, people in the future will look back on what we do with animals in terms of factory farming now as an absolute travesty. Mm. And yet the food that I ordered was a, chicken bacon pizza and yeah. this that, and the other um so yeah it was it was interesting it's interesting uh to to see people like yourself and like uh toby ord who don't just sort of talk the talk but they they put their yeah they put their money and their uh vegetables where their mouth is yeah well it's, it's why why bother like why bother doing any of this investigation if you're not going to allow it to inform your actions like it would be like kind of spending years and years and years trying to figure out the best way to develop nuclear technology. And then you finally work it out and you go, ah, can't really be bothered to do it. I mean, it's a lot of effort, you know, it's like, then, then why bother do the investigations in the first place? I would say, look, remember difficulty is a relative term. If I offered you five pounds to run a marathon, that's, 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 that's a difficult thing to do for five pounds. But if I offered you a million pounds to run a marathon, it's probably the easiest million dollars you've ever made, right? It's like the term difficult is relative to the consequences of the action, right? Like, and relative to the suffering that you'll save by going vegan, the difficulty level is, is like nothing. And we don't allow that, that kind of, uh, those kind of reasoning and that kind of excuse making to be taken seriously on any other ethical issue. I mean, like any other ethical issue that you choose, if you're talking about theft, you could be talking about domestic abuse or something. If someone was just like, look, I, I agree that it's wrong. It's just a lot of effort to change it. It's like, well, tough. Ethics isn't supposed to be easy. If something's wrong, then stop doing it. It's not like it's impossible for you, right? It's like it's inconvenient. Yeah, well, you know what else is inconvenient? Being put in a gas chamber. Like, I, I think I have a bit more sympathy for the pig there than I do for you, I'm afraid to say. Um, and it's worth, it's, it's worth just remembering that, like, but the, okay, the, the worst part is that, like, it's not really fair that I lumped that on you because I, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day at the pub and he's not a vegan and the rest of us there were vegan and we were talking about it and we ended up having a big discussion about it. And by the end of the night, we're outside just going, well, just, just, you know, just do it. You know, you know that it's wrong. You know that. And then 
I saw someone who we didn't know, like a stranger, kind of go past on his, on his motorbike or something. And you know when you see someone drive past, and you, you've never met them, but you just look at them and think, I just oh, I know that I don't like that person. Yeah. Um, it, 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 was, it was like, it was one of those situations. And I thought to myself, that guy eats me. And here, and, and I, no, but I thought, I thought, here I am. I thought, here I am. Like, I'm here with my friend who's one of the nicest people I know. One of the nicest people I know. And here I am, like, lambasting him for his dietary choices. That guy is going to go and eat me, and he's not going to suffer for it at all. It's like, why am I punishing you for being my friend? You know, like, this doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair that I, 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 should, I should lay this on you and I'm not going to go and lay it on the stranger. Why should he get away for the rest of his life, never even having to consider that eating meat is wrong, but you don't get, a, get to get away with that because you had the misfortune to meet me and now, like, I, this is on your mind every time you go and, and, and buy some milk. And it, it, it annoyed me. It frustrated me because I thought, this isn't fair on, on, on people. This isn't fair on people that just by chance they happen to have met the wrong person who now is, is putting this in their head. But then I also thought, well, no, because, like, by telling you about this and by saying it bluntly, it's like it's an indication of how much I respect you as someone who who wants to better themselves, who wants to get rid of false beliefs, who wants to adopt more true beliefs and live in line with with uh, a virtuous ethic. And it's like everything that I see you do, you know, like when you're tweeting about things and, and you're posting Instagram posts and sometimes they're motivational, sometimes that like you, you said earlier, um, something like always avoid stupidity. Right. And it's like. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's pretty stupid to think that you that you're justified in torturing an animal so that you can have a bit of bacon. If you want to avoid stupidity, then you know, avoid it. Avoid, if you want to avoid stupidity, then avoid McDonald's. You know, like it's like, and I realized that I'm justified in talking to you in this manner because it's 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 not an attack. It's a it's a like, look, man, I see what you're trying to do, and I reckon like I respect you enough to know that you, that you can do better, and this is how I think you could do it. And that's just that's just one man's opinion, like. You know, who am I to tell you how to live your life? Well, I'm not, but I'm telling you how I'm here to tell you how I how I live my life, why I live my life in that way, and how it's benefited me, and how I think it could benefit you too. And then it's up to you as to whether you want to make that decision or not. And when history looks back, as Peter Singer says, you'll be counted among the oppressors or the liberators, and you've got to make that choice. And I love it, Alex. Today's been awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where should people go? They want to want to watch something. Why don't you, um, if if people were to watch one video of yours? What would you recommend? They go onto your channel, say search Cosmic Skeptic, which will be linked in the show notes below. Um, what video should I put in there if they were to watch I would, one? I would, I would recommend um, the, the one that I have as the channel trailer is a speech I gave in Tel Aviv uh, called Why It's Time to Go Vegan. Um, and it's one of my proudest videos uh, just because I think it, it landed quite well. People seem to like the speech. Um, other than that, there's a video I made called A Meat Eater's Case of Veganism, which a lot of people, I think that's how you found me in the, because that's the video originally, we originally yeah, yeah, discussed. Yeah. Um, that's one of my favorite videos uh, to talk about, like ethics and stuff. You know, I, I used to be more about philosophy of religion, atheism, that kind of stuff. But I, I could care less at this point if you believe in God, if you're still like paying for animals to be tortured. So like those are the most important things. But, you know, the second link under that would definitely be patreon.com forward slash cosmic skeptic. That's the, you know, make sure that that's uh, that's that's also in the. Will in, be in, linked in, in, in the description, you and you have a Patreon too now, which I'm which I'm so glad to hear about. I know, indeed, I know, <laughs> indeed, man. It, it, all all because of you, all because of you. Um, so yeah, everything will be linked in the show notes below. Oh, final thing, actually. So yeah. you mentioned about the uh, gentleman from America whose book was a good read, um, as a, a basis for ethics. Mm. Michael Sandel. Yeah. Anything else that you think? easy intro or just an interesting myth of sisyphus i guess uh I don't, i'm not sure if that's the easiest intro it's about the well, i mean it's about the philosophy of suicide um which can be a bit much um i would recommend if you're just looking to get into ethics michael sandel's justice is a good place to start you can also read peter singer's practical ethics 
where he he goes over and kind of discusses what does equality mean um when is it okay to kill you know like all of these kind of these these kind of questions it's, it's a really good introduction um practical ethics by by peter singer if you're interested in the discussions on utilitarianism that we've been having then uh roger crisp's book mill on utilitarianism is the analysis that's worth reading and i think if you want to read utilitarianism by john stuart mill it's worth reading it alongside crisp's uh, analysis or reading crisp's analysis first just to make sure you kind of understand everything that mill is, is getting at Jesus. and understand the this different is like interpretations. Uh, marcus aurelius's meditations where you need to have like someone <laughs> someone along for the yeah. ride who can actually explain what's going on yeah you probably want to make sure that you actually know what you're reading it's, it, it's like a lot of times you're reading like um old philosophy you you probably want to read it with some kind of uh some kind of analysis not because it's necessarily because it's difficult philosophy but because the language has changed like people meant different things by different words and you need to make sure you understand what people uh what, what people are saying um yeah ethics wise i think i'm just looking at the, the the ethics section of my oh ethics in the real world is also a good uh, collection of essays by peter singer as well um you can probably tell i mean peter singer is is, is one of the most influential thinkers on, on my thinking in my life um ethics in the real world are a series of very short essays on very particular ethical questions like you know should you refer to in news stories should you refer to animals as who or that so like you know should you say the cow that or the cow who like very specific questions across a broad range of different philosophical issues um and it's quite an interesting read so th those are some recommendations that I would, I would give to get people going cool awesome alex man thank you so much uh I, we're gonna have to find somewhere else i'm gonna have to get something else to to pull you back on about yoga or whatever the uh, <laughs> next adventure is that we take post-covid. Yeah, I'll see you about that. Yeah, any time, man. It, it, it's always good to speak to you. Um, if you ever need me to come on and talk about veganism or something. Or, or, or something. Or anything. You know, that's, or veganism. That's fine. Yeah. I don't mind. All veganism. Anything or veganism. <laughs> all veganism as everything. Because veganism is my everything. My one, my love, yeah. The man. apple of my eye. Well, I hope, it, I, hope it's, I hope it's non-GMO apple because... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's organic. Um, whatever the latest, both free range. Yeah, grass, grass fed. fed. Apple. apple of my eye. Yeah. <laughs> Man, thank you for your time. Cheers, dude.